Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the clasp on America's Bible bra. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, 1680 AM, Ada, Grand Rapids. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Hello. And the doctor professor himself, Luke Galen. Actually, I've been demoted to just a master's. Oh, sorry. That's rough. In science. Oh, well. <laughs> now, uh, we have we have a packed show today. Coming up later on, we have an interview with DJ Grothy. But first, we've got some news that we need to address here. And this is a news item that I, I don't think we could possibly avoid talking about on the show. But it's also one that I dread having to talk about here because it's such a difficult issue. Uh, on November 5th in the United States in Texas at Fort Hood, Major Nadal Hassan opened fire in a room full of unarmed soldiers at uh, Fort Hood, Texas, killing 13, wounding 38 others. Uh, he himself is, is actually, despite what we were told by the military all day of the event, was not killed. Um, but is currently in a coma. I think he's out of the coma now. Oh, is he out of the coma now? But he's paralyzed. Boo-hoo. It's being called the worst terrorist attack on American soil since September 11th. Really, a lot of people weren't saying this is the largest terrorist act. And well, that had some, like uh, CFI fellow Ibn Warak, right. um, very upset well, you know, in the press. and But uh, most of the... Uh, conservative media has jumped right on calling this uh, an, an act of terrorism. I believe Fox News has been doing that. And, um, well, the problem is that we have we have a hundred different definitions of terrorism. Exactly. And people just often start at the end with it's a heinous act. Yes. And then they work backwards according to their political or social affiliation just to make a case for why it is right. that. Or why. So everyone's looking into this thing and projecting if you are you know, a hyper-liberal, you're going to see it as he was traumatized by other people's stories of war and didn't want to go to war and that was – or right. he was insane and had mental problems. If you're a conservative, you're going to say it's a it's his – it's his Islamic faith that's causing it. So yeah, it's, right. It, that's what I think is very interesting about the story is is the narrative as opposed to the facts it of the situation. It tells more about the person making something yeah. of it than the individual Absolutely. at this point. And, and the point that Ibn Warwick makes, and this is an important point, is that we cannot, like uh, he charges much of the media, CNN, New York Times, NPR, Washington Post – uh, they're presenting this as um, he claims they're saying that Hassan is a victim. I don't, I, I don't know that they're, they're really portraying it quite like that. Um, but he charges that by leaving out the Islamic connection, by not making a point that um, Hassan is Muslim, this was done because of his beliefs. He actually says that. Political correctness is uh, as guilty of these murders as Hassan is. Um, I, 
I think that's way, way overstepping the point. But I don't think we can say that Hassan's Islamic uh, belief system is not an important factor in these attacks. It certainly is that. But can you say that Islam is entirely responsible for it? Now you have this like uh, you have an equation of things like an algebra equation with each component having a weight, yeah. and different people pick different parts of the weight and amplify those. Right. I mean, if you want to compare it to like the Virginia Tech shootings, where even more people were killed by um, Sung Hui Cho, right. a lot of people took be- different pieces of that one too. He was a mentally unbalanced young man, exactly. But then he made videos saying that he was, you know, persecuted, and he had some religious yeah. references there too. And then it was the gun people, anti-gun people saying it was his ease availability of firearms. It's the same with this one too. That you yeah. can, if you look at each component, you might say each one is necessary, but but to say that each component is the, is the exclusive focus. Exactly. You know, what if Major Hassan wasn't a Muslim, but in fact was a Christian, but still had mental problems, or still didn't want right. to go to war w- or whatever? Would like he that. have done this? And yeah. And, and um, yeah, Warwick talks about the root cause fallacy as he calls it, the root cause fallacy, he says, is designed to deflect attention away from Islam, in effect to exonerate Islam, which we are told is never to blame for acts of violence. I'd be willing to, to concede that, that that his Islamic, that if you have a strong conviction that, that your beliefs are, are above question and that you are, you know, like in his case, if, he, if it's true that he, in fact, thought that the, any military action against Iraq and Afghanistan was anti-Muslim, and since he was a Muslim, he was defending his brethren. If you want to make a case that that is, is religious, I would be willing to concede that. However, you could that they just executed the sniper guy, the Washington sniper guy. Yeah. He thought that uh, you know he had some kind of anti-African-American persecution complex. And too. he was also uh, Muslim. Yeah, so are you going to argue that, that in this case that, that, that one belief system is somehow trumps another belief system? Right, but as, as the picture begins to develop of who this guy is, a lot of details have been coming out. He... He's quite used radical. the battle cry of jihadists, uh, God is great, before he started shooting on everybody. Uh, people before had filed complaints about him because he did a lecture where he mm-hmm. justified suicide bombing. Right. The well, FBI was investigating him because he was cruising websites that were pro-suicide bomber. And mm-hmm. it sent about 20 emails to a radical cleric in, in Yemen yes. uh, who was known to encourage... Uh, I think two of the 9-11 hijackers were connected with this cleric as right, well. Right, right, absolutely. He's, he's an al-Qaeda member, and even after after the shooting on November 9th, mm-hmm. this al-Qaeda cleric praised Major Hassan for doing the right thing, well, <laughs> for yeah. being courageous. But you expect that, I mean, anytime there's a, a attack against... Yeah, but they were corresponding. They were sending letters back and forth. I don't it's know not, that they were sending letters like, back and forth. I there think was more he, emails outgoing than inbound. It, exactly. He was trying to contact this cleric, but I don't know that the cleric ever wrote back to him. He probably gets thousands of emails from people asking questions about Islam in many right. different ways. It, you know, if there would have been a specific dialogue like, you know, when I put put a bomb on, should I put the timer? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that would have been a different story. But but he was like sending things like, what's the role of, a, of what should a good Muslim do if blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. You know, and sure. as far as the like Alu Akbar thing. I mean, if you're a Muslim and you are in any danger of like dying or doing some sort of act, you're going to say that. That's kind of like it, saying, you know, it's like a Catholic crossing themselves. Yeah, before if you're going, on the pavement yeah. after a car accident, you're probably going to say that too. If you think you're going to buy the farm, because I'm not sure it's always a battle cry, even though it can. Yeah, be it is. Handy. It is the cry of the the jihadists who will, you know, 
typically before they set off a suicide bomb or before anything like that. Well, I guess but it's a prayer. I guess this time I'm the odd guy out because I work has convinced me. I mean, he's put off uh, up enough information here for me to conclude that this this was radical Islam. And, oh, I, I, I'm and not nobody's arguing claiming that. this is all Muslims. I mean, even in, in right. Warwick's piece, he, he's very clear about, you know, obviously not all Muslims do this. Right. But it's not right to try to peg everything on psychological influences, no. on pressure from his other – from other enlisted men. And I don't think either of us is, is – I'm not saying that. I'm sticking with my algebraic equation metaphor. Yeah. That each, each weight – there's a certain weight that adds up to an end act. And that if you you take all these things into consideration, that if you didn't have one of those components, maybe you know. But to emphasize just one and say this is the this is the deal breaker, I think I'm I'm stopping short. Yeah, of I that. think the right, root right, cause fallacy goes on both sides to say that Islam is the root cause of this is just as fallacious as saying um, pre-traumatic stress is the root cause of this. But I've been listening to the coverage of this, and you guys didn't find that there was a little bit of a whitewash as I, concerning I his religion? Well, that's I mean, that didn't, I didn't they get by. every that, imam that they could on to, to say, oh, no, Islam absolutely. couldn't ever be construed to really teach this? And I think where Warwick says that... Um, that point, I think he's absolutely right. I mean, I understand one of our first concerns in, in our nation domestically should be for other Muslims in our communities and Muslims in the military that they not get reprisals based on this. I entirely agree, but that's no that's but, no excuse for ignoring the role that beliefs play in this. But Warwick even says um, – uh, there's laudable concern among Americans about a possible backlash against all American mus- Muslims. What backlash? Even following the September 11th attacks with their 2,976 victims, Americans behaved with exemplary restraint. They behaved in a civilized manner in the face of barbarism. Is that true? Did, did Americans show? It was very, I, I don't know. Maybe it is. The reactions were varied. I've personally yeah. talked to Muslim students who were like, you know, cursed at when they went Absolutely. out in public afterwards if they had their garb on. We've covered on the show before, like the the people, American troops who are Christianified. We've made the case that it probably made them a little bit more trigger happy against people who weren't their faith right, right. to do that. So. If you want to think of that as an example of just whatever religion in general, increasing somebody's ability to do extreme things because you're, you've separated the outgroup, those are the opposite religion than me. Yeah. Is it? I guess the question here is, is it specific to Islam? Well, we don't have to say it is specific to Islam. No, but um, I want to, to look at the end of uh, Warwick's piece here. He says, when Muslim soldiers or agents or operatives feel that their primary allegiance is to Islam and not the United States... Can we safely allow their service to continue? It is an agonizing question, but one we must confront. However, we cannot properly confront this question while we struggle to pretend that Islam itself is not part of the dispute. Well, that's the same debate we had on our on our Lord's Army episode. Exactly. If you get a poll of American was... soldiers and ask, is your primary allegiance to Christianity or the Bible or the Constitution, what do you think that you would get? Exactly. Right. But Warwick is not saying that Christians should not be allowed to continue their service because they're primary no, but I think that's for the many of them. That many people would say is that we need to give those Muslims a loyalty test. Well, exactly. I, and I would agree. And we need to give the Christians a loyalty yeah. test as well. Sure. To be fair on the other side, that's what we said. We said when we were talking right. about this in the realm of Christianity, we were saying it is disturbing mm-hmm. that you have that you have some of these evangelical groups that are targeting military officials and teaching them, you know, 
God, Bible, family, then government, and yes. and everything else, and and the way they view their role as as missionaries within the military, trying to raise up a godly army, that is cause for concern. Yeah, nobody's saying anybody should be expelled from the military. Well, or, or some people or not, are. We're not because just because somebody has a religious conviction. Yeah, but. Um, some sort of screening for zealotry, you know, I don't know. It might be useful. Do you guys remember when the Oklahoma City bombing occurred uh, in oh, yeah. the mid-90s, you know, mm-hmm. the truck bombing thing? 96, and, and, I think. And people were, like, right away were starting to look for a foreign extremist. Or, like, it had to be well, a Well, it was shortly after the the first World Trade Center yeah. bombing. And, and, yeah. so, and so everyone was looking. For, and then it was like, oh, it's a it's a white guy who's a Christian right-wing nut. Yep. Oh, Okay, well, uh, he's insane. Exactly. And, I mean, and this is the yeah. type of thing that always bugs me is that I, I'm perfectly willing to say that, you know, religion played some role in this thing and that, you know, and that, yes, yeah, uh, a lot of Muslims might be encouraged to have loyalty to Islam instead yes. of this. But pot kettle, people. I yep. mean, you know. Wh- Tim McVeigh's distorted <laughs> worldview. He had a Christian sort yeah. of right-wing racist view and it encouraged his acts just as much as this guy. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So I guess the overall conclusion is that the media should pay attention to religion's role in all of this, but should do it consistently? Yes. All right. That was a heck of a downer way to start out the episode. Let's move on to something light and happy. Um, I guess we'll start off by reading the listener email we have here. Yes, we have a listener email from someone who identifies themselves as Oklahoma State Joe. Oh, Oklahoma State Joe. Do you know Oklahoma State Joe? Uh, He's a relative of Joe the Plumber. He says, Reasonable doubters, I am a new listener and I am a Christian. I have found some interesting aspects of your podcast disconcerting. All right, his complaint, though. Yes. He says, You seem to go after baby Christians. That seems needlessly cruel. Right. I never could think of any time that we attacked infants. In fact, I would think there that was that one babies, time oh, okay, well, in the nursery today on our show, we have two-year-old Tommy. I want to go. Shut up, Tommy. Your views are stupid. I so. did once try to knock a knife out of the hand of a moil, but that was a that would have been protecting a Jewish he was, baby. He had to. He so. was right. right for the package. Yeah. <laughs> Self-defense. He says, you never attack the grown-ups of Christianity. William Lane Craig. Yeah, Yeah, well, yeah, obviously that's his point. He thinks that we're just attacking simpletons. Usually the type of people we do discuss are those who are considered the top apologists. William Lane Craig, Mm -hmm. Habermas. We did one on Alvin Plattinga. Ravi Zacharias. I don't know if I want to put him in the good camp, but... You know, we do focus on some very prominent Christian apologists, the ones that Christians themselves would consider to be the best. Right. So who does he want us to take on? Who would count as a grown-up Christian to him? Or or even a, a, a tween would be fine at this point. He says we should take on the most influential Christian writer of all time, he says, C.S. Lewis. I was thinking Jesus. Paul. Paul. <laughs> or Paul, I guess, would Today be better. The yeah. Apostle Paul. <laughs> says, specifically, read Mere Christianity. Just think, you could disprove the very heart of Christianity, for that is what Mere Christianity is all about, the essentials in believing in God. If you are worried that Lewis has no way to respond to your criticisms, then no fear. I or a more mature apologist will. Ooh, he's taking (laughs) up the reins himself, huh? Yeah, he says, you will be attacking the heart of apologetics as well. Wow. Um, The, the the funny thing is, is that C.S. Lewis, Christian apologists barely ever take up 
C.S. Lewis's arguments without modifying their content. Um, some of the arguments that we have talked about, those from Plattinger and others, are um, arguments of Lewis's that have been reworked, hopefully to have more logical consistency. Apparently dumbed down, according to uh, Joe in Oklahoma. Yeah. So, but anyways, yeah, let's do it. We've never actually talked about C.S. Lewis on the program. I have to admit, my ignorance. I'm, uh, you guys have have grown up with more Lewis than I did, and I, I was even as a as a Christian after you know, for twenty years, I had I was Lewis naive. We we didn't really do that much with that. Uh, see, I and I was actually taught because I went to Christian school. I was taught the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as a Christian text. This was this was a allegory for. For the life of Jesus, and there was a lot of C.S. Lewis worship in my churches growing up, and See, at my college that. and everything. And yeah, people just adore the guy to death. Mm-hmm. And I've always kind of wondered why, because even as a Christian, I never found his arguments, his apologetic works at least, never found them the least bit persuasive. I did see the Shadowlands movie with oh Anthony, Anthony Hopkins, Hopkins and yeah. And so it's always been hard for me to understand what. Lewis's appeal really is to so many Christians, and I I don't know I I would I think it has something to do with the fact that he's he's a good writer. I mean, just as yeah, far as sure. his language flows very well, well. he has like an eloquent way of stating things. Um, they like him because he was an atheist, and he claims that he then was not convinced. Right, by but that a lot of apologists have claimed that much. I mean, yeah. C.S. Lewis's story is not like unique. Well, yeah, at least Strobel. And... But C.S. Lewis also has the component of being a fiction writer as well. So he's, right. he's got this, which you know is imbued with all these Christian ethics and allegories. So, so he's known by the, by the popular culture at, at large. Much I mean, more he's... so than for his right. uh, apologetics works, yeah. So maybe it's his prestige that is more of the... I think in large part, yeah. Yeah. Well, so we decided to take this up. Mm-hmm. Let's take a look at... C.S. Lewis for this episode, and let's look at Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity is considered his most popular and most influential apologetics work. Right. I hadn't actually read Mere Christianity before preparing for this podcast, but I did. I read it in its entirety, and uh, I was really surprised that he really only develops a few arguments for the non-believer to right. persuade the skeptic that God is real only really develops a few core arguments. Most of it is all just glorifying the Christian faith right. and uh, bolstering and, up the base. Yeah, 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 nice little devotional tidbits here or there. Mm. The one argument that he uses in the beginning of the book, book one of Mere Christianity, mm-hmm. to try to establish the existence of God is a moral argument for the existence of God. Ah. The basis of it is that there is some sort of moral law that all human beings are aware of, that it guides our ethical decisions, and that it shows that because this moral law exists, there must be some mind in the universe that cares about morality that created that law and put it in us. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes, Everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny, and sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant. But however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kinds of things they say. They say things like, How would you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on. You promised. People say things like that every day. Educated people as well as uneducated, and children as well as grown-ups. 
Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him; he is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play, or decent behavior, or morality, or whatever you like to call it, about which they really agree, and they have. All right. So C.S. Lewis is establishing some sort of moral sense that human beings have in common. He calls it a moral law. He also calls it the law of human nature. And one thing that's important to get is that he doesn't think this is a law of nature like the law of gravity or、right. something like that. It's not a causal law. Not compelled to obey it. Right. People will choose to disobey it sometimes. But he calls it a law because everybody knows it. It's just part of human nature, as he says. The human idea of decent behavior is obvious to everyone.、Mm -hmm. Now, this idea that everybody knows the moral law, but nobody is forced to obey it, he finds this very significant. Quoting another part of Mere Christianity, right and wrong must be something above and beyond the actual facts of human behavior. In this case, besides the actual facts, you have something else. A real law which we did not invent and which we know we ought to obey. I now want to consider what this tells us about the universe we live in. So tell us, Dave, what does he think this says about the universe we live in? What is behind the universe is more like a mind than it is like anything else we know. That is to say, it is conscious and has purposes and prefers one thing to another. And on this view, it made the universe partly for purposes we do not know, but partly, at any rate. In order to produce creatures like itself, I mean, like itself to the extent of having minds, the being behind the universe is intensely interested in right conduct, in fair play, unselfishness, courage, good faith, honesty, and truthfulness. I think we have to assume it is more like a mind than it is like anything else we know, because after all, the only thing we know is matter, and you can hardly imagine a bit of matter. Giving instructions. So I, I thought that was kind of funny.、Uh, uh, yeah. Lewis is before the discovery of DNA. Certainly shows his time here, <laughs> yeah, doesn't he? I, I,、yep. He can't be blamed for that, but I、right. I think he wouldn't ever put it that way、uh, if he would have known.、Uh, we we can say how a bit of matter can actually give instructions, give instructions. and we're going to actually talk about that later, the role of evolution and instinct. But first, before that, let's continue his his argument. If there was a controlling power outside the universe, it could not show itself to us as one of the facts inside the universe. No more than the architect of a house could actually be a wall or a staircase or a fireplace in that house. The only way in which we could expect it to show itself would be inside ourselves as an influence or a command trying to get us to behave in a certain way, and that is just what we do find inside ourselves. Surely this ought to arouse our suspicions. Yeah, <laughs> one, one might wonder why the deity couldn't be a little bit more precise, and and so that we wouldn't have such debate over if it was such a clear moral law. Why do all the denominations fight about about right about、yeah. specific moral issues? You think if there's a god-shaped hole, it could be a little bit more precise, so that we wouldn't have arguments about. And it. yeah, he's making this huge assumption here that、mm. somehow God couldn't make Himself known in His creation in any other way. It's a quite limited God. He has some、there. sort of moral sense we have. I so mean, he couldn't be a wall or a fireplace. Using his house analogy, but he could be a moral <laughs> right, sense right. inside that wall. Like the architect couldn't、really? write somewhere if he 
was really concerned about it. Hey, this building created by <laughs> from, yeah. the, Him- you, from you know. the satellites and Himalayas spell out Jesus is Lord <laughs> and mountaintops. Right. Maybe yeah. a, maybe a better example would be a painting. Artists sign their paintings, you know, right, a, right, in exactly. a in a literal way. Why couldn't God do the same? He could give us direct knowledge of him internally, yes. something, some conviction that was so strong that God existed that we would never question it. So that 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 part is just kind of a, a weird, quirky assumption. Yeah. Regardless, how do we explain his major case here that human beings do seem to appeal to some common moral standard? Uh, we feel guilty, too. Lewis emphasizes this over and over again. We mm-hmm. feel guilty when we violate that moral law, when we go against what our conscience tells us right. is right. What about sociopaths? He would say he would say just in the in the same way that somebody could be blind or deaf, right? Yeah, um, of course. That maybe there could be some disability where people wouldn't have knowledge of the moral law. Sure. Well, there's one real obvious explanation I think where all of this could have come from other than just God, and and that is society. We internalize certain social norms. We are educated. Mm. We have a moral education. We get it from our culture. Our parents teach us a set of values, and we learn that if we're going to break them, there's going to be consequences that are going to follow. Doesn't he say where would society get those from ultimately then? Like the regress? Yeah, but where'd your parents get them from? Well, actually, I think he has a pretty good counter argument to to the cultural side of where we get our moral sense. I think he doesn't make enough of cultural upbringing and, and moral training as, as he should, but he does have some, some good rebuttals. If we did receive our moral sense from culture alone, we wouldn't have much reason to suppose that different cultures would have the same norms. We might expect to see some major differences. But then Lewis claims, There have been differences between their moralities, but these have never amounted to anything like a total difference. If anyone will take the trouble to compare the moral teaching of, say, the ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, Hindus, Chinese, Greeks, and Romans... What will really strike him will be how very like they are to each other and to our own. So I could more or less agree with this. And I think, Dave, yeah. Dave too, you, you study a lot of mythology. Right. I've, I've read a lot of the uh, religious texts and some of the philosophical yeah. writings from each one of these cultures that he talks about. And I have been impressed that there are sometimes a, a some remarkable, remarkable, yeah, very much an overlap between different moral ideas of different cultures. But there's a lot of big differences, too. And yeah, I there is. I think he's kind of uh, glossing over that fact. Yeah, I, I, I think I think not enough attention is paid to the differences. But regardless, we can see there does seem to be some sort of baseline moral sense yeah. that isn't completely relative to culture. Sure. And some of his other points against cultural relativism, I th- I think I can accept. I think they're pretty good points. Mm-hmm. I mean, he makes he makes just first of all the empirical fact that we do as a matter of practice make cross-cultural judgments. It doesn't mean that it's right to do that, but I I think I'm like a lot of other people in that I I feel very uncomfortable saying that the Nazis were doing something that was right for their culture. Right. You know, because yeah. not that we have a different cultural view of this. And, and so that's that's how we differ. But but that 
I like to say, yes, they were actually wrong. I, yes. can, I can judge cultures outside well, of myself. And even things like human sacrifice. And so we can say right. this is female this circumcision. Is, yeah. We can we can make cross-cultural judgments. Right. I would feel very uncomfortable saying that we shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And then he also Lewis also brings up how would cultural relativism make sense of the moral progress that we've actually experienced over time? So if you think about it, uh, these aren't his examples, but slavery, women's rights, racism, all these things. If the culture at large does change its mind mm-hmm. and some minority to begin with of people who went against their culture was the one who was pushing for change, how would we make sense of that on a cultural relativist account? Racism and sexism was right for a particular culture until they changed their mind and then it was wrong. And and where's the tipping point? Right. Do you have to have a majority of people who – because even when, say, something like interracial marriage was made legal in this country, the majority opinion of the country was against it. Does that mean it was still morally wrong until a majority right. of – So where, where do the people who initially start combating this, yeah. where do they get their moral conviction? I think that is – I think that's a legitimate problem for a relativist account. But we're not so, relativists. No, no. Okay, so I can agree with him. It doesn't quite seem right to say that our moral sense or the, the rules that we expect people to obey in society, that that comes entirely from culture. That seems to be wrong. But he ignores this other possibility of where our moral sense might come from, and that is those little instructions again, mm. the, the, the DNA. Could we not get our moral impulse from evolution, from instinct? Yep. Well, we've proved that there are universal grammars for language. For example, Noam Chomsky very famously, and Steven Pinker has worked on this, has shown mm-hmm. that the, the basic rules for syntax uh, in, in language are, are universal. Uh, they are something that has just evolved. Everybody has these. Can we say worldwide instead of universal because we don't, we don't know what people yeah, are? Aliens from other planets yeah. might, yes. might uh, have... <laughs> Tonal things like exactly. My my apologies uh, to the (laughs) extraterrestrial listeners of our our podcast. All right. Well, then some have also been looking for a worldwide grammar to our ethical thought too. Mm -hmm. Something that people in in all different cultures values that we accept because they have been bred into us, right, and selected for by evolution. Yeah, so the, you know, evolution. This is the big area. One of the big areas in evolutionary psychology right now is is morality research. That was something that you know that couldn't have been done before. We have certain techniques, but yeah, but everywhere there's converging evidence from primatology, study of like you know social apes to brain research, right. uh, game theory, uh, social psychology, w- looking at templates that are more or less in everybody. So let's take like Franz Duval's work with the chimps. He had a big hit oh, a couple of years back with Chimpanzee Politics, his book about his study of the uh, chimp colony in Arnhem in the Netherlands mm-hmm. about how, how groups of chimps have to form social norms in order to survive as a group. And mm-hmm. those norms, funny enough, look just like what Lewis is describing in some of his passages about reciprocity mainly. Right. I thought that was so funny that a lot of his examples in that first paragraph we read, they were all about fairness. 
You give me an orange and I'll give you... Well, that's what a chimp yeah. does. Is Reciprocal chimp, altruism. Chimps record... Who you pick is, the nits off of me, I pick the nits yeah, off of you. Grooming, social grooming. Mm-hmm. They record a, a tabulation of who grooms who. They often use that for purposes of advancement up the hierarchy wow. in the chimp hierarchy about who can... Rules about grooming and reciprocity. If you don't share with the other uh, chimps, he rec- they record that you get shafted the next time they get a food. They remember things like mm-hmm. reciprocal altruism and, and things like uh, when there's fights... The other chimps force the uh, malefactors to make up. So when right. when males are warring for dominance, a bunch of females will get together and sometimes drag the person over really? and, and make them and put their hand on them right. and make sure and that make they them. And if you watch the videos of this, they hug. I mean, it's like a. It's kind of weird to watch because it looks like a human embrace. It looks like yeah, a gym class where the guy says, "Now you guys shake hands." Yeah, yeah. Have none of this. Or the anymore. two kids are fighting, and you say, yeah. "All right, now make up, hug." Yeah, uh, and once you oh, think about wow. this, how else could a social group ever have survived in, in a social yeah. context without having a certain rules of of of? Um, now, now there are. L- Rule breakers, or there's even chimp sociopaths. There's like a certain yeah. proportion that that are really, uh, you know, high strung and often do stupid things and like beat up on other people. But often what they do is they end. It's a risky strategy because they they get ostracized by the group. And if you think about it in a Darwinian sense, you're not going to leave your many genes behind because you're not going to find right. anybody else to help you raise your kids or to mate with. Uh, you know, uh, if you violate those rules. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, certain rules like basic things of tit for tat and reciprocity. So we know that from chimp work. We also know this from there's a, there's some theories about uh, theory of mind where are animals like the higher animals, chimps and such, able to formulate what you're thinking uh, in order to deal with social relationships. Right. You uh-huh. can see some of these videos where they uh, – I another example of Lewis gave was the example of somebody taking your seat accidentally versus deliberately right, taking your seat train. on a train. Right, on a train. Sure. And you would be angry at the person who did it deliberately, but you would not be angry at somebody who just did it by accident, didn't know that you that was your seat. Yeah, so they, they've done research also, again, with chimps. Of, for, uh, for example, uh, I think Daniel Pavanelli is the researcher who does this, where a, the human caregiver walks into a room, pours himself yeah, a cup of juice, I've seen this. Uh, and then dumps it on the floor deliberately. And the chimp's looking at them like, what the hell are you doing? And then another guy uh, stumbles or gets knocked and, and dumps the juice. And then the chimp has a choice. Who do you want to give you juice? So in either case, the juice was dumped out, but the right. chimp always chooses the person yeah. that accidentally spilled it rather than the deliberate one because obviously the chimp is able to then get a notion of uh, intentional right. uh, accidents versus something that was deliberate. That was no accident. I saw one experiment with... They were actors. Yes. I saw one experiment with bonobos where the uh, the chimp had a food tray. They could not get the food for themselves... But they could. I saw this. Yeah. Yes, but they did have control to dump the food so that none of the other bonobos in the in the other cages could right. get access to it. And they studied just that. If I'm having I'm having trouble recalling the exact specifics, but I think if the food was dumped on accident, mm-hmm. there would be no retaliation from the other chimps. If the, if they could tell it was just an accidental consequence, but if they knew one of the other chimps, on the other hand did intentionally right. dump the food they would they would retaliate against against them so so they w- it's clear that they were guessing the intentions and the desires of, of the other yeah, chimps and, and mm-hmm. like playing that into their outcomes. about specific brain research where, where like the dictator game where somebody can make an offer that you can either reject or accept 
And right. when the offers start to become unfair, people have an indignant response where they void the entire deal and nobody gets nothing because they get like, you know, $1 and the person keeps nine. Mm-hmm. Well, they've done, you know, the experiments of this are directly related to regions of the brain. There are certain religions, regions of the brain where people that light up like a Christmas tree when the person gets indignant in a moral sense. And here's a twist, though. When you're playing a computer, if the person thinks they're playing a computer, they take even unfair offers because they figure, well... It's a computer. No big deal. I right. might as well get a dollar instead of right. nothing. Yeah. But when you think that you're pl- you're still playing a computer, but when you think it's a person, the person's photograph flashes up of somebody you met before the experiment, then you have that indignant response. Huh. So people are wired to distinguish between getting shafted again just because of the universe, the mechanistic aspects, and it doesn't piss them off. But but you're wired to have an indignant response when when social norms are violated, where you get shafted by somebody uh, and you want to retaliate, and people sometimes even take a hit by doing. things third-party retaliation. There's a lot of research on things like moralistic punishment where it violates all, it's like altruism, violates all survival instinct that you actually get a hit from pursuing some other MF to make sure that, can I say that? <laughs> to make sure that they are, in fact, punished. Uh, right. And, and the, the group rewards you for that. So these are all examples where, uh, like with Lewis's thing, where how could this possi- how could people possibly agree on that? Well, that's how, because yeah. As a social species, it's wired into us that yeah. we have certain norms that monitor things like disputes, fairness, reciprocity in, in a social right. sense. And it is an evolved characteristic. And and current research is, is bearing this out, right? Mark Hauser and other researchers are doing surveys globally, playing different moral scenarios out and seeing how people respond. And what the data seems to be saying so far is that this this is a cross-cultural phenomenon. People will very uh, – people may emphasize certain values more than others depending on their culture. But overall, the big picture, our basic moral sensibilities seem to be pretty stable cross-cultural. Yeah, rules like favoring kin over non-kin, human over non-human and, you know uh, – Things like uh, that. Uh, if you're going to do something to sacrifice somebody, it's the morally abhorrent person who gets pushed over the bridge first, rather than right. uh, somebody who's not morally. You know, you can push a Nazi versus a group member. So, and these things, yeah, like you said, it doesn't vary by religion or not religion, by Buddhist or Hindu or whatever like that. A lot of these things are fairly stable, and they're present in our in our nearest. They're present in our relatives. There's brain regions that look specifically dedicated to these things. People like we talked about earlier, like sociopaths. Uh, there's been studies like Damasio has done people with frontal lobe damage that appear to have, you know, are, are tone deaf act, neurologically for some of the moral distinctions that uh, that we mm. make. In fact, they're sometimes ultra utilitarian. You know, the trolley yeah, scenario: right. shove somebody over a bridge so it will stop the train. Okay, it's one for five. So yeah, one guy's emotions just don't right. seem to compute. They into don't their have their, their brain. Yeah, they don't have an information that their their emotions don't uh, say. Hey. You better think about shoving a guy over the bridge to, you know, even though it's one for five, you still have to think about that. Well, that's another challenge to Lewis's argument, I think, is that our errors in reasoning, the the, kind of the inconsistencies, I guess you could say, in our moral reasoning, those are detectable by different tests, too. Mm -hmm. And they point to a pattern that doesn't suggest some sort of moral law that we're working from. They point from the fact that these are crudely evolved impulses. Our feelings can get crossed, and Often we don't. Yes, we will contradict what we claim to be our own values. Or, or and then build it, rationalize and build a case afterwards for why we have a moral intuition that was sort of a gut shooting from the hip, like a gut level response. So we can account from this from an evolutionary way of thinking. How would they account for those inconsistencies 
that we nevertheless consistently make yeah, if you're in our to moral make a God uh, argument reasoning. Here, why, would, why would God be sort of use a blunt instrument of having a conscience that right. has a little light that goes off that says this is violation, but if it's not specific to any, it's just in a right. very general sense like, you know, be nice to people who are nice to you. If he's using that argument for the existence of God, why isn't it so more specific than that. Why use Jiminy Cricket when you could use the Hulk, who could just smash you when you do something wrong? <laughs> the Hulk? Hulk smash. Hulk smash, puny human. Hulk have moral quandary. <laughs> well, Lewis does acknowledge the fact that we do have moral instincts, such as an instinct to help people who are in danger, an instinct towards compassion. He does acknowledge that those exist, but he thinks that can't be the moral law. So his his counter-response to saying this is from evolution, I think, would be the following. Feeling a desire to help is quite different from feeling that you ought to help, whether you want to or not. Supposing you hear a cry for help from a man in danger, you will probably feel two desires. One, a desire to give help, due to your herd instinct. The other, a desire to keep out of danger, due to the instinct for self-preservation. But you will find inside you, in addition to these two impulses, a third thing which tells you that you ought to follow the impulse to help and suppress the impulse to run away. Now this thing that judges between two instincts that decides which should be encouraged cannot itself be either of them. I essentially agree with his point. There does come a point where we have impulses in two different directions of course. and something else needs to intervene and arbitrate those disputes. But why I disagree with Lewis is he just is certain that this has to be God, that this has to be from God. This moral law is the third standard that comes in and decides between our conflicts. Right. And my objection would be who says it has to be a third law and not just one outweighing the other? Because they're not just because there are two instincts does not mean they're equal instincts. Right. Well, look at his his next quote. If two instincts are in conflict and there is nothing in a creature's mind except those two instincts, obviously the stronger of the two must win. But at those moments when we are most conscious of the moral law, it usually seems to be telling us to side with the weaker of the two impulses. You probably want to be safe much more than you want to help the man who is drowning, but the moral law tells you to help him all the same. I, I just think he's really playing fast and loose here. Uh, I agree. Because, again, even though people that have a quandary between a rational response and an emotional response, there's situational factors that it will affect you, whether that person that's drowning is in your group or not, whether the right. person who, well, um, sure. you know, uh, or um, there's like a, a willpower reservoir that people have. So there's been the studies done that, that if people like dieting or, you know, they have a right response, not cheating, that if they are fresh and rested, they'll, they can resist the temptation. But when you te- stress them out with some other task that depletes their willpower, mm. they're more likely to go with a lazy, immoral thing, you know, or cheat on their diet or cheat on a right. task. And you're working from evidence here. You're pointing out what right. experiments have that. borne out. It's a manipulatable out. variable, your willpower. Right, right. Yeah. And Lewis seems to be just reaching into the black box of the mind He's and just, just throwing it declaring out there. that yep. we choose this thing, that the impulse we follow is usually the one that's not as strong. There's no way to show that Lewis's interpretation is correct, that, that we, are, we yep. are choosing against our greater feeling regardless. I think the overall point is that we, we do use a standard to judge oftentimes even if it's retroactively, unfortunately. Right. But we do use a stu- standard to judge which of our instincts we should trust. 
Uh, when, when we get into situations where our impulses conflict, which one is the better one to follow, self-preservation or altruism, for example? But why should we conclude this is a consequence of some moral law? If anything, I would say that this looks more like a consequence of our reason. Nature has equipped us with feelings and inclinations to behave a certain way through evolution, but it also gave us the ability to reflect on our feelings. We can abstract from our experiences. We can determine which of our impulses, if we acted on them, would have the best consequences. We don't have to follow our instincts blindly. We can think about them. Right. When our natural moral intuitions are pulling us in two different directions, we can use reason to decide which is the best to follow. And I actually think that better explains the way the world actually is, right? Because reason isn't really perfect. Sometimes we engage in rationalization more than we actually do in reason, right? And that would explain why people are often coming to different conclusions, because not everybody is as rational as everybody else. Not everybody is always consistently rational. Emotional and other concerns can come in and they can, tri and they can trump uh, what logic is telling us. Or sometimes we simply never take the time to really think through and make a consistent ethical position for ourselves. So all the disagreement, all the ethical debate, all of that makes sense if it's reason that we are using to kind of supplement or, or judge between our, our natural moral impulses. But if we had access to some moral law, as Lewis is saying, then shouldn't we just always know what the right thing to do is? I agree with him. It doesn't mean we'd always follow it, but shouldn't we at least know with conviction what the right thing to do is? Why should there be any need for ethical debate at all? We should just understand it internally. So for this and so many other reasons, it's clear that Lewis's argument fails. It doesn't even accurately describe how we behave as moral agents in the world, much less point to some sort of a god. Well, if there is a god, couldn't he be a little bit more specific with some of the instructions here? Yeah, right. Sure would be nice. The way things actually turn out to be really suggests that it's not a god. It suggests something more like a blind process, like evolution. Mm-hmm. There is one point that Lewis brings up that we really should consider, though, which is he says the, the most dangerous thing you can do is take any one impulse of your own nature and set it up as the thing you ought to follow at all costs. There is not one of them which will not make us into devils if we set it up as our absolute guide. Amen. And yes, I would entirely agree. It, it would be a mistake to go from looking at primate morality, chimp, chimp morality, mm -hmm. looking at our own impulses and instincts and moral sensibilities and say that 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 is the standard then for right and wrong mm -hmm. uh, to, to make that our new moral law would be a big mistake and that's actually the subject of our interview with dj grothy dj grothy is the host of point of inquiry uh, the podcast for the center for inquiry he is also the Vice President and Director for Outreach Programs at the Center for Inquiry and an Associate Editor of Free Inquiry Magazine. Welcome, DJ Grothy. That's how he always introduces people on Pointer Inquiry. This is Reasonable Doubts. <laughs> And 
I should start off by saying I love C.S. Lewis. I still read C.S. Lewis. You know, I grew up on kind of intellectually uh, C.S. Lewis's apologetics, loved it. Mm. But his argument that it's proof of God's existence, the fact that everyone has similar morality, in, in fact, doesn't suggest God at all. It suggests uh, common evolutionary origins. Mm -hmm. So we're all people. So it's no wonder that we're all similar. Um, now, some would say based on that, then, that morality is just an illusion because it's just something that's evolved. Right. And you have folks who use this argument about the evolution of morality to be skeptical of ethics. They say, oh, it's not really there at all. It's, it's like any other faculty that evolved. But my response to something like that would be, look, our eyes evolved too, but that doesn't mean our eyes are seeing things that aren't there. Our moral faculties, yes, they evolved, but they they are uh, responding to real moral facts. Now, that's a hard claim, um, mm -hmm. controversial, but I think that objective morality, well, that, that it's testable, it's out here in the real world, it's not just a matter of my taste or your taste, and that it's, it's not just illusory, even if folks like E.O. Wilson and others might suggest as much. Your original question, though, was can you use evolution to justify ethics? Mm -hmm. Can a hard-nosed science type, a secularist or a skeptic like those of us in this room here, we're all nodding and kind of agreeing with each other, can we say evolution says, you know, thus saith evolution. I should behave this way because it's natural. And that's a fallacy in reasoning. Uh, the naturalistic fallacy that says we should be able to derive an ought from an is. We look at nature and we say, this is how it is in the real world, out there, we can test it and discover it, therefore that's the way it should be. And I don't think you can go that far. I think you need something other than just evolution telling us how we are in order to figure out how we should be. If we wanted to use evolution for our morality, there might be some situations where we could say, yes, empathy, reciprocal altruism, some of the very good behaviors that have evolved in us, it, it seems natural to try to use evolution as a reason to uphold those as good mm -hmm. things that we should practice. But mm -hmm. then the other side of the coin is, what, what about other behaviors like, uh, like rape? forced copulation, right. that has an evolutionary rationale. And the evolutionary psychologists, uh, some of them get in real hot water when they say, hey, murder is actually pretty natural. Mm -hmm. uh, rape yeah, is actually pretty natural. And you have the feminists say, oh my gosh, they're trying to use evolution to justify rape. And the evolutionary psychologists say, no, no, hold on. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just talking about that it is. It's natural. It's an evolved uh, kind of inclination of whatever, right? And I'm not saying that in a hard and fast way. I'm not saying we're all kind of hardwired to be rapist. I'm just saying right, there are right, evolutionary right. origins to really every way that we behave. So goes the argument. So uh, if you're going to try to use evolution to justify ethics, again, I think that's the wrong route. You, you might go the other direction and say, I'm going to use evolution to justify all the bad ways of being. And this is the big, scary thing for Christian apologists. Right. They're not against evolution. Fundamentalists aren't because evolution says there's no God. They're against evolution because evolution implies for them there is no God and therefore there's no reason to be good. Mm -hmm. So they draw a direct line from... Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection to genocide 
and murder and all the social ills. So my whole point here is if you use evolution to try to justify ethics, you still have to ask which ethics because right, you get right. good Absolutely. behavior and bad behavior out of evolution. It's funny then some scientists might be making the same mistake that certain anti-evolutionists and Christian apologists are making, equating is with ought again. But my question for you then, if we cannot ground our ethics, if we cannot justify our ethics by what is, by turning to biology, then where do we go? Where is the source that we ground our, our moral worldview in? Mm. I think we need to turn to critical, rational reflection, rationality, asking questions like what matters to us, I'd argue, I think controversially among some ethicists, I'm not an ethicist, I kind of play one in conversations, um, I try to live ethically, but uh, I would claim, I'd argue that moral knowledge is in that sense discoverable. It's in no way different from any other kind of knowledge. It's out here in the real world and you can uh, learn it just like you learn other stuff. If you're going to ask is an action moral, you, you can't say, well, of course it is because it's natural in the wild. Because there are a lot of things that are natural that we don't do. We aren't just natural, we're cultural. We kind of create institutions and social structures to overcome our natural instincts. It might be natural for me to be jealous of, of the guy at the bar and fight with him for, for my social status, but we do other things then that are just natural. You said that morality is discoverable, that moral facts are real real things in the world. I, I'm curious if you could give an example of this. If you're going to talk about moral duties and what are we obliged to behave like to other people, you have to start at the very beginning. You have to talk about something like uh, what's valuable to us. And I think it's a, a kind of common sense approach to say that some things have overriding value to human beings. Some things are very important to us. And let's take one of them. Well-being. Well-being is a valuable thing to us. Let's define it minimally as limiting unnecessary suffering, not suffering unnecessarily. If we can all agree that one's well-being is valuable. How is it objective and out here in the real world? Well, you you measure it. You can say uh, that person's well-being is diminished in these ways. They're not matters of opinion. It's out here in the real world because you say, oh, that person is suffering. That person mm -hmm. says I'm suffering or that person lives miserably or that person has no food or that person is in want. And those aren't matters of taste. They're, they're not in my head. They're out here in the real world the kind of secular ethics I would talk about is universal, but not absolute. So it's okay. relative to human beings, but all human beings can share in it. So it's universal to all human beings, but relative to human beings, not absolute. In other words, it's not all time and space, God says, etc. If you're going to get into uh, thorny questions about cultural relativism, we can say objectively, I can say that even if Nazism in Hitler's Europe mm -hmm. uh, made sense for them according to whatever rationale, I can still say from my vantage, um, and not only from my vantage, but argue that even for them it was morally wrong. Right. Uh, if, if you're looking at ancient civilizations, I, I think you could use the same kinds of arguments. Just because 
someone hundreds of years ago mm -hmm. would throw her, or thousands of years ago in ancient nomadic right, tribes, would right. throw her baby on a rock mm -hmm. in, in a sacrifice. I can say that was wrong. Now, did she have all the knowledge of, uh, that I have? Uh, are there limitations on her ability to make decisions? This sounds a little kind of superior, you know, historically superior. Of course, yeah. But uh, I do believe in social progress. Mm -hmm. I believe we have progressed and we are more right morally than some ancient nomadic uh, people. Right. So I have no problem saying we're getting somewhere and that there is such a thing as a steady march of social progress. Mm -hmm. Now, it, it seems to me then that the morality you're describing, it's if, if we could say it's objective, if, if we could say we're discovering facts, it's because you're, you're basing it in, in outcomes, not so much as subjectively held values, but real tangible outcomes in the world. Yeah, I, I think that's fair enough because uh, looking at consequences as a, as a way to test uh, the moral rightness or wrongness of an action as opposed to just saying, uh, Dave, you like chocolate and I like vanilla. Dave, you like to murder people and I like to cuddle on the couch. <laughs> hey. um, uh, but it's just you a matter. You know so much about Dave. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, he has a window into my soul. Exactly. Uh, what I'm getting at is it's not just a matter of taste. It's not right. just that you like to be bad and I like to be good, but no one can say one is better than the other. We can say right. one is better than the other. And how? By looking at consequences, looking at the real stuff out here in the real world. If you like to be mean, does it harm people? Well, it's not an open question whether or not it harms people. You look at consequences. This is a kind of common sense understanding of morality. Uh, it begins, as I was saying, with the fact, right? Not the opinion, but the fact that some things in life have special overriding value for us. These are what you know, uh, highfalutin moralists, uh, secular ethicists call moral goods. So the argument goes that the moral life consists in increasing moral goods, bringing about moral goods, preventing moral bads, and, uh, you know, we used the word, we, we were banding about the word consequences. This is a moral theory called consequentialism. Says right. it's not the thought that counts. Right. Um, it's only your effects in the real world. When I've had the conversations like these with religious believers who are wondering, you know, what, what basis do you have for your morality? And, and they want something absolute. Mm -hmm. They want something true, true for all time, right. no question. I don't know if this is just kind of bailing out or what, but the answer I give them is I can't always tell you what's absolutely true as an ethical system, but I can tell you objectively mm -hmm. many ethical systems that <coughs> won't work. Right. Because if they are based on discredited notions of human psychology, mm -hmm. if they do not work with the way the world actually is, and, and they could never realistically be lived or have good consequences, you can discount all of those ethical theories, all of those moral mm -hmm. systems. So I can't always give you absolute certainty what morality is, but at least I can start weaning out some of the options. Right. I think that's a great entree into the discussion uh, to talk about discredited ethical notions and that so much of uh, kind of Judeo-Christian, Islamo-Judeo-Christian ethics is discredited according to the measures you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. But uh, I also like when someone says, hey, uh, I'm, I'm hungering for some absolute truth about morality. 
to engage on the point of certain knowledge versus reliable knowledge mm. as skeptics mm -hmm. and not even as kind of crazy postmodern skeptics who yeah. are radically yeah. skeptical and think that you know there is no truth and therefore any idea is just as good as any other right. and that science is just you know one mythic narrative and all that stuff we don't even have to be extreme skeptics to be honest enough about truth claims and knowledge to say we may never have certain knowledge. We may never have certainty. You know, the American pragmatist tradition says you don't have certainty, but guess what? Just because you don't have certainty doesn't mean you can't have reliable knowledge. Exactly. You don't need certain knowledge in order to have reliable knowledge. And how do you get reliable knowledge? You get reliable knowledge by looking at the things I was talking about, these kind of consequences, the objective stuff out here in the real world. You don't need an absolute morality in order to have a robust, objective, and ardently justifiable uh, secular ethics. And uh, in that sense, not only do you not need God to be good, but having God or believing in God may actually be bad for your moral health. This uh, rules-based morality, uh, divine command morality, is the kind of pernicious problem with religion because it removes moral agency in a sense from mm -hmm. the actor. So if God tells me to kill someone, I say yes sir and I do it because I assume since God said it, therefore it's right. But we're uh, kind of ethical enough to realize that if there were a God and he said kill someone, we would probably say God damn it, God, that's immoral. I'm not going to do that. Right. Reminds me of an anecdote. I probably shouldn't share it on air, but I bet you a million, no member of my family is going to listen to this. So I'll share it. <laughs> I was at a gathering of some of my family members, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, I didn't know that one of my relatives was in earshot, and I wouldn't have wanted her to hear this. So I was talking to some of my younger family members, uh, extended family, and I kind of offhandedly said, you know what? I think I'm more moral than God, right? And that's created a reputation for me, my whole extended family. Oh, there's the guy who thinks he's better than God. It, it killed John Lennon's career. Yeah, you gotta be careful right? with that kind of talk. You know, and that's often the charge, isn't it? Against... DJ Grothy, bigger than Jesus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, or, or at least better. I, I think right, our right. ethic is, is, you know, Jesus's ethic was all about a kind of a token economy and reward and punishment. Right. Um, not mm -hmm. doing good just for goodness sake. So I think we're nicer guys than Jesus. Contra, frankly, what Richard Dawkins says. He says, hey, I'm all for Jesus. I'm not for Jesus. I think Jesus, his teachings were deeply, deeply immoral. Okay, but back to this other point. You know, now uh, in my whole family, it's, it's like, oh, uh, uh, and this is the charge that evangelicals and fundamentalists make against secular humanists all the time. Mm -hmm. Ooh, you're putting yourself in the place of God. Well, damned right. I, <laughs> I want that moral agency. When, sure. Mm -hmm. When Adam and Eve, my gosh, they were banished from the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. Why? For eating of the tree of the knowledge of, of knowledge. good and evil. Absolutely. Right? The tree of knowledge of, of good and evil, like it's a bad thing mm -hmm. to know right from wrong. I want to know right from wrong, and, you know, screw God for telling me I can't. I don't know if you've read Mark Twain's version of the... Letters uh, from the Earth. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, his story of, of the Garden of... Uh, <laughs> of um, 
Eden, and it's fantastic. And yeah. and he plays up that idea and and ends with this beautiful humanistic idea that heaven is where Eve is from from Adam, and it's right. you know it's this beautiful story. But I I love that humanistic angle and humanistic interpretation of of the Garden of Eden story right. that right. it's. It's man seeking knowledge and being punished by the gods for it. Right. And it's, it's fascinating to see how other cultures deal with, with that, too, because it's unfortunately Judeo-Christian is the pervading mythology mm-hmm. in our culture. Mm-hmm. And that's the idea we get stuck with. I think if we were coming from a more Greco-influenced mm-hmm. background, we'd have a very different view where Prometheus brings fire to save humanity right, and is right. punished for it. Yeah, the Hellenistic influences of mm-hmm. the origins of our culture, I I, you're, I agree. I wish they were more um, evident today. Be and way not, more nudity, too. <laughs> well, which works for me. Yeah. In fact, your listeners probably don't know, but I am nude right now. Well, yeah, we, we all are. Yeah. yeah. It's, that, that's it's the way we so record. gay, you guys. <laughs> yeah. What, do you have a problem against that? <laughs> yeah. I'll be who I want to be. <laughs> okay, back to the high-minded stuff. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Sorry. Well, um, do you get a chance to talk about this with people out, out, outside of CFI, outside of the secular community? Because I think, I think a lot of religious people just assume that secularists wouldn't be ever making the claim mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. maybe you could have a more objective, fact-based morality. Maybe we could be able to argue about these things and, and that not all not all moral decisions are completely relative at base. Yes, the answer is I uh, appreciate that kind of conversation actually more than just talking to, you know, our own strange bedfellows. There I go, sounding gay again. But uh, <laughs> I uh, go figure. Uh, so I like to engage the cultural competition, in quotes, mm-hmm. with these kinds of conversations, much more than just preaching to the choir. How many mixed metaphors can I you know, <laughs> have in a, in a sentence? I was keeping a tally, uh, but I lost track. But it's important for us to have this conversation within the secularist and the skeptic community, but even mm-hmm. more important for us to engage out there. Because I think too often we just take it when someone makes the charge, the accusation, not only that you can't be good without God, but that there are no reasons to be good Mm -hmm. if there is no God. So if you're a dirty little atheist and you say, I'm good without God, they might even give that to you. They might even say, okay, fine, you're a nice guy, I wouldn't mind you as a neighbor, but Mm -hmm. frankly, you don't have a good reason to be good without God. You have no moral compass. Exactly. Mm -hmm. If there is no God, what keeps you from going out and raping and pillaging and the straightforward question all your listeners should ask their Christian friends if they have any is if there is no God, do you love your children any less? Do you love your wife any less? Are sunsets less beautiful? Are, are, is there less meaning to your life here and now? The answer is no. And that's the great project of the secularist, the kind of atheist, not just to walk around in some nihilistic rejection of value. And I've right. bumped into some of these folks, oh, yeah. you know, even in our midst, but actually to wrestle value and meaning in our three score years and 10 on the planet. Mm-hmm. A, a great way, uh, I think it's really fun to engage 
believers on this point is uh, every time you see an evangelical Christian or a fundamentalist even on a college campus wearing one of those little bracelets, WWJD, mm-hmm. what would Jesus do? I think that's a good question. We should always ask that. Would Jesus be the, the uh, consumer that we are? Is Jesus a socialist Jew or is he a white Protestant capitalist? These are important right. questions. What would Jesus do? But a much bigger question that I think that stripe of Christian never, ever asks is why would Jesus do it? Mm-hmm. So if, if Jesus says, do thus and so, he's saying it for a reason. And those reasons precede the decision. Those, the decision is based on those reasons, in other words. Right. I think what these Christians should have emblazoned on their T-shirts and their bracelets, not what would Jesus do, not WWJD, but why would Jesus do what Jesus would do? It should be WWJD, WJWD, <laughs> or something like that. Um, and while a mouthful, I think that would give them pause. That would make them start asking the kinds of questions I think they should ask. Perhaps yeah, we should then, start wearing those bracelets. Dave, uh, you start marketing those. I'll, I'll, buy the I'll first get right one. on it. Yeah. Awesome. I'll buy the first one. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, DJ Grothy, for joining us on the show, and good luck to you as you're bringing this message of a, a secular foundation for ethics. Wow, okay. you make me sound like an atheist circuit writer or something. <laughs> atheist evangelist. Now He's that. the P.T. Barnum of atheism. Yeah. Yeah, ne- never met a sucker I didn't... What? Uh, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> there I go again. Well, thanks to DJ Grothy for talking with us. We're going to finish up today with some props and shit list. First off, on the shit list, there is a provision in the Senate health care reform bill that uh, would allow prayer treatments to be paid for. Yeah, a very specific type of prayer treatment, Christian science healing right. sessions. Although Christian scientists are not specifically mentioned by name in, in this bill. This was introduced by Orrin Hatch, Republican senator from Utah, uh, but it also has support from John Kerry and the late Ted Kennedy, which is mind-blowing, yeah, except when you factor in that the headquarters of the Christian Science Church is in Massachusetts. Right. And one of the reasons I, I should say, yes, the bill doesn't specifically mention that this is for Christian science prayer treatments, but the reason why we know that's what it's directed at is that the language allows money to be given to any services, any religious treatments, quote, explicitly identified as deductible by the IRS. And Christian science and, prayer treatment yes, is. And which, which fits that bill? It Frankly, I blame the IRS for most of this problem because they're the ones who, who allowed that to be deductible. And um, it would prohibit discrimination against religious and spiritual health care. Is the language. Is the language in there. Um, Phil Davis, a senior Christian science church official, said prayer treatment was an effective alternative to conventional health care. Really? Because the research says different. He also says, we think this is an important aspect of the solution when you are talking about not only keeping the cost down, but finding effective health care. What I can't imagine is what is the cost for prayer treatment about 20 40 dollars a day yeah, something like a person that person would charge 20 to 40 dollars a day for praying yeah for the patients it sounds like they get together and pray why did they didn't just frame it as some form of religious 
counseling. Right. You know? Right. Because that, I think, maybe has a little bit of legitimacy to it. There might be mm. just comforting somebody overall. And Yeah, I don't know that that's an expense that should be paid for by the insurance company. No, I don't, but I think they'd be on a much better legal ground, it it sounds like, instead of saying, you know, money for unproven spiritual treatments. And that's the concern that people have about this provision is that, okay, yeah, at the moment it's worded in a way that's really trying to pass this Christian science prayer, but could this not open up the floodgates for any kind of untested treatment? Waving crystals. I mean, who's going to want to distinguish between prayer and something else that's pseudo-spiritual? Yeah, of course, there's there's certainly concern about the... um uh, church and state issue here, where is this is this promoting a religion? I, to me, the bigger concern is the science issue. This is promoting bad science. Um, but the good news is that a this provision has only passed through a couple of committees. Majority Leader Harry Reid is considering whether to include it in the consolidated bill on the yeah. Senate floor. Nancy Pelosi. Actually um, took it out. Took it out of the House bill, of course, left in the thing that would make abortions almost impossible for anyone who actually needs them to get. That's a separate issue. The Christian scientists, there's a fascinating history here with their legal battles. Uh, this article, which I believe is from the L.A. Times, says that in the early 20th century, the church sought recognition from state regulators so the practitioners would not be prosecuted for practicing medicine without a license. Yeah, that's that's how it came to be enshrined yes. in the IRS. But they uh, have laws. lost cases uh, um, when children have died, right. um, in, including cases we've talked about on this show. When they've been taken to a prayer treatment instead of a... Yeah, when they need real treatment. <laughs> Dr. Norman Faust, pediatrician and medical ethicist at the University of Wisconsin. Yes, he says they want a special exception for people who use unproved treatments, and they also want to get paid for it. They want people who use prayer to have it just automatically accepted as legitimate therapy. Thank you, Dr. Faust. Yes. And this is a very telling quote, though, from Phil Davis uh, from the Christian Science Church. He says, We'll talk to them about their relationship to God. We'll talk to them about citations or biblical passages they might study. We refer to it as a treatment. <laughs> Hopefully this does not make it into the, the Senate health care bill. Well, if this provision in it does get passed, who knows? It, it could probably be challenged legally. I, yeah, I, I don't know how worried we need to be of it, but it's just disturbing that it would even get that far. Yep. Uh, well, let's let's end here with props, and this might be... One of the weirder props we've ever given out. Uh, my wife found this one because she was watching Divorce Court. Divorce Court is one of thousands of these courtroom shows, like the People's Court. 12 Minutes to Wapner. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and on Divorce Court, they had this guy, Alex Vaca, who was getting a divorce because his wife says, quote, he's gone completely insane and believes that the apocalypse is happening. He's one of this these 2012 people that the Lions. don't get me Koya started on that. Yes, people believe be, that the world is going to end on December 21st, 2012, because that is the end of the Mayan calendar, um, and also because there's a new movie starring John Cusack about this. <laughs> His career is going to end. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Wah, wah. Was it Bill Maher who said something like, if they could see the end of the world in 2012, why couldn't they see Cortez coming? No, it was actually, oh, God, who was that that said that? Uh, It wasn't Bill Maher, but, yeah, it was fantastic. 
So how did divorce court handle this pseudoscience claim? And this is surprising because this is this is trash TV, okay? But they brought on to address this gentleman, they brought on none other than our own previous guest, Michael Shermer, to debunk the 2012 apocalypse scenario. He gets to do so many fun things as he a does. representative of Skeptic He was in magazine. Ben Stein's movie, which had to have been awesome. Uh, the gentleman getting divorced says, What about NASA being concerned with the 2012 and solar flares? Shermer responds, NASA is not concerned with 2012. Guy getting divorced, What? Shermer, I've talked to NASA scientists, and they have no concern at all about this. The worst thing would be that Twitter would crash for a day. <laughs> Everyone laughs, except the guy who's getting divorced. Shermer says... If he really believes the world is coming to an end, he should give all his stuff to his wife right now. Just turn it all over to her because what oh, does he need nice this move. stuff for if the world's coming to an end? <laughs> Guy says, survival. <laughs> and Shermer responds with, ma'am, take your stuff and run. I was going to say, though, if, if for any listeners who do believe in 2012, uh, we have a program now at Reasonable Doubts of a legacy donation where just, you know, if you're not going to be using your money or your house or anything like that, then sign it over to uh, – it's like those people at the Rapture people that, like, you know, if you really believe in the Rapture. RapturePets.com. I'll take care of your – yeah, yeah. why don't you pay me in advance and I'll take care of your pets. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, props to, uh, of all places, Divorce Court for advocating a skeptical viewpoint. Yeah, yeah. The more we get that public exposure, and I'm guessing the people who watch TV during the key time of Divorce Court, I'm yeah, guessing that demographic like or so. yeah. could probably use a little bit of skepticism and critical thinking. Absolutely. Well, ever, at least more TV than they're getting usually. Of, they have all kinds of ads for education. They're like, you know, go back and get your GED or like, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Learn computer skills. Those are the commercials are that always are on daytime TV. So you're there sitting there with your bottle of scotch, uh, <laughs> watching daytime TV in the divorce court, and it's all about lawsuits and litigation. If you've been exposed to, you yeah, know, it's, right. it's ambulance chasing lawyers and education programs. They know the needs and of now, their and consumers, and that's where yeah. we need <laughs> people. We need to target this demographic. And you know? Michael Shermer. All yeah, right. maybe we need to do a different version of our show that. An outreach base. As long as you're unemployed and sitting on the couch watching Divorce Court, think skeptically. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, – we'll, oh. Quick, like one-sentence props. Military Religious Freedom Foundation was nominated for next year's Nobel Prize. That's so, right. Not so much a props, but a congratulations to them. Uh, we've talked about them a lot before on the show. We're big supporters they of what they're doing. They do some very important work. Yep. And uh, I think they entirely deserve their nomination. So. Yeah. And we'll end it there for this week. Until next time, check out our website at www.doubtcast.org. Email us at doubtcast at gmail.com. Join the forum. A lot of good discussion going on there at doubtcast.forummotion. That's one M in the middle, dot net. Or you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or even Zazzle via T-shirt at slash doubtcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time right here on Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.